and you got to the start of chapter 32 and you didn't know what was coming, you might well expect it to be very different to how it is. I, I suggest you'd expect it to be a much more joyful chapter than it is. Jacob's been in exile for 20 years. 20 years away from his home. 20 years away from his parents, uh, from all his inheritance that's there waiting for him. And now he's going home. More than that, in the previous chapter, in chapter 31 verse 3, the Lord's appeared to him and the Lord has told him to go home. And the Lord's promised to be with him and to bless him. Moreover, he's been greatly blessed during his exile. He's acquired great wealth. He's acquired a wife, uh, wives, children, animals. A- and he's, you would think going home in a great sort of victorious triumph. And instead we find this elaborate, protracted planning and preparing to meet Esau. Now why should it be like this? I suggest to you the answer is to do with sin. James Montgomery Boyce points out one big difference between the way Jacob meets Esau and the way Jacob met Laban in the previous chapter. He was scared of both. You remember he, he tried to escape from Laban secretly to get away from him with his wives and his children for fear of Laban. And now he's going to meet Esau and he's in fear of Esau. But the attitude is totally different in the two. When Laban comes against him with his men, Jacob stands up to him face to face. What are you doing? What right have you got to come after me like this? How dare you talk to me like this? He's a very, very different Jacob to how he's preparing to meet Esau. And surely the one difference is this. Before Laban he lived a righteous life. Before Laban he knows that Laban has got no just criticism of him. No just complaint to bring against him. Yes Laban can come out against him but Laban is in the wrong. This time it's Jacob who's in the wrong. As he thinks back to how he left Esau and all that happened between him and Esau it's not Esau who's in the wrong, it's Jacob. And so as he's going back, what's weighing on his mind is not so much the fact that he's going to meet someone who's angry with him, but that he's going to meet someone who's angry with him who is in the right. And he's in the wrong. And that's what sin does to us, doesn't it? It robs us of the peace. It robs us of the confidence. It robs us of assurance. It robs us of being able to look the other person in the eye and say, how do you come out against me like this? By what right? When you know in your heart that you're in the wrong. And yet again, right there, the Lord meets him, doesn't he? Verse 1 of chapter 32. The angels of God met him. Amazing, isn't it? What an encouragement that should have been. You know, when you read in uh, Isaiah 37, 36, that one angel destroyed 185,000 men in a single night, what could an army of angels do? And God shows Jacob that he's got an army of angels there to protect him. The description, the word there, um, you know, he names, uh, uh, this is the camp of God and he named the place Maonaim. And it's two camps, it's two armies, it's two large numbers. It's not like it's one or two angels. This was a host of heavenly beings. And yet Jacob is still petrified of meeting Esau. And then when he hears that Esau knows he's coming and Esau is coming out against him, not only is he coming out against him but he's coming out with 400 men, 
He's absolutely petrified. Look at verse 7. What does it say? In great fear and distress. My friend, if there's sin there in our hearts, we can't expect to feel any peace and we can't expect to feel any confidence and we can't expect to feel any assurance. Even if we're God's child, we won't have any assurance in God. His promises won't mean to us what they should mean to us. His presence won't mean to us what it should mean to us. All the time there's unconfessed sin there. All the time there's sin that we haven't repented of. All the time there's sin that hasn't been dealt with. It's a barrier. It's a destructive barrier. And despite the presence of the Lord, despite the army of angels, Jacob's petrified of meeting his own brother. And he's defeated before he even meets him. Do you see the way he speaks? He said, I divide, I divide my, camp, my camp into two lots. At least that way, when Esau destroys one lot, hopefully the other camp will manage to escape. I mean, he's already accepted that he's lost the battle. And yet he doesn't even know if there's going to be a battle except in his head because he knows he's in the wrong. My friend, are you carrying unconfessed sin or even worse, unrepented sin? Is there sin there in your heart that you don't even want to get rid of? Truth be told. Is there something that you're holding out on before God? You, you can try and convince yourself that it doesn't matter, you, but it does. You can try and convince yourself you can still live a victorious Christian life, but you can't. It will keep pulling you down until you sort it out with God. It will rob you of all peace. The smallest obstacle will seem like a mighty mountain. And even the, pres- the knowledge that, that you are the Lord's, if you truly are, even that knowledge will hold no comfort for you, no joy, and no peace. All the time there's the smallest thing there that you know is wrong and you're just not dealing with it. And you're not confessing and repenting of it. That's Jacob. But then we come to verse 9. I'm so glad we get to verse 9. We haven't really had anything good to say for Jacob up to now, have we? Apart from the fact that he could love a wife and love her well. But we get to verse 9, and I don't know if I'm putting emphasis there where emphasis were not intended in the original text, but it just seems to me it could certainly carry emphasis there. Then Jacob prayed. And I find that so significant because that's the first time in the life history of Jacob as we have it recorded in scripture that he actually prays. I'm not saying he hasn't prayed up to now but certainly scripture doesn't say that he has up until now. From the middle of chapter 25 we read him invoking God's name when he lies to his father. We find him seeing and hearing God in a dream. We find him naming a place, the house of God. We find him making a vow to God. We find him acknowledging God's power to give children or to prevent pregnancy. We find him listening to God and obeying God. We find him crediting God with all that he's gained. But only now when he's terrified and filled with fear do we find him actually coming and praying to God. Isn't that so often like so many of us? How many people do you know, including amongst them some who profess Christ, who really just treat prayer like uh, the last emergency service. You know, when I can't solve it any other way than I'll pray about it. 
And let's be honest, e- even the best of us Christians, aren't there times when we find ourselves inadvertently doing that? You know, we, we will talk to others about issues, we will uh, read about issues, we'll consult the internet about issues, we'll do all sorts of things, and then it suddenly, I haven't prayed about it. I haven't poured out my heart to God about it. Why? And that's Jacob. It's only now when suddenly he can't see any way that he's going to get out of this situation and it looks like at least half of his family and possessions and everything are going to die, maybe all of them, that he really comes and prays to God and prays the Lord he does. And if he hasn't got a lot right up to here, he does a pretty good job of praying, doesn't he? Look what we can learn from this prayer. First of all, he prays to the right person. He's not praying to some saint. He's not praying to some... God of, of Laban's he's praying to Jehovah God Jacob prayed O God of my father Abraham God of my father Isaac O Lord Yahweh Jehovah capital O-R-D he's praying to the God who is from everlasting to everlasting the one who has made all that is and yet at the same time he recognises that this is a very personal God a God that is in a relationship with human beings the Elohim the God of Abraham the God of Isaac It's a shame he can't add there the God of Jacob as well, isn't it? But he recognises that he's the God who is the God of all things, the God who can do all things and the God who has been in a relationship with his father and his grandfather before him. My friend, do you pray like that? Do you pray knowing who it is you're coming to pray to with that absolute confidence that you're speaking to the one that holds the whole cosmos in his power? the one who arranges the planets, the ones who brings the stars out, the ones that brings the seasons in their due time, the one who is over everything, the one who raises empires, the one who appoints kings, the one who deposes them, the one who is working everything out to the glorious day when Jesus Christ will return in glory. And it is him that through Jesus Christ you're able to come and speak to. Do you understand that? Do you appreciate that? If you're his child. And then he praises God for the blessings of that life. Verse 10, his kindness and faithfulness. He can say that I only have my staff. I, when I was, Steve was reading that, I thought, oh, I better just clarify that for youngsters among us. When he says I only have my staff, it doesn't mean all his employees. It means I only had a piece of wood when I came out here. That's what he's saying. When I came out, all I had was a piece of wood that I could hold in my hand and now I'm coming back with a multitude of servants and animals, two wives, children. The Lord, he says, has given me all of this. It's right when we come to praise God that we recognise what he's done for us, isn't it? And it's right we thank him for it. And it's right that we acknowledge his goodness towards us. So often, so many just take so much for granted. The world takes everything for granted. The world takes this world and says, this is my right. A Christian doesn't do that, or he shouldn't. This is God's grace. It's God's grace that I have air to breathe. It's God's grace that I woke up this morning. It's God's grace that I've got a mind that works. It's God's grace that I've got loving relationships with people. It's all of his grace. And most especially in Christ Jesus, it's his grace that I'm saved. It's his grace that his spirit indwells me. It's his grace that my sin's been forgiven. And, and we praise God, we worship God for that, don't we? Before we ask for anything else, we recognise all that he's done for us and all that he's given us. And Jacob does that. My friend, do you pray like that? 
Or do you find yourself rushing into God's presence with a whole list of things you want to pray for? You know, I must remember to pray for that. I've got that to talk about. I've got, I've got that that I need God's help with. And what gets squeezed out? Just our worship of God for who he is, Yahweh, Jehovah God, and our recognition of what he's already done for us and given to us. Jacob gets that right. And yet at the same time, wonderfully, just look at verse 10 there. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness. He recognises all that God's done for him and he balances that with the absolute truth that he didn't deserve any of it. None of it. We live in a generation that is so me-orientated, don't we? So my rights-orientated. So much about my worth and, and my, my standing. And Scripture just robs us of all of that, doesn't it? We are the dust of the earth. From dust we are unto dust we return. All that we have, all of our standing is in Christ. All of it is by God's grace. God looked at me, Dave Hall, and said, you absolutely stink. You, what you see as your righteous deeds, I've got to tell you, to me they're like filthy rags. You're ungodly, you're a sinner, you're alienated from me by your sin, you're dead in your transgressions and sins. You've gone your own way. I, I can't see one good thing to say about you except I've created you in my image and I've chosen to redeem you. And that's his grace, isn't it? And Jacob recognises that. I didn't deserve any of that, what you've given me. I'm totally unworthy. My friend, do we see all that we have as being of God's grace? So easy, isn't it? We work hard for our livings. If you, some of you I know work in very hard work situations and you put an awful lot into it, physically, mentally, emotionally, and it drains you and it's so easy isn't it almost to come away from that thinking I've earned this you know I'm providing for my family I've, I, at least I'm doing this and yes you are in a sense I'm not denying that but it's only by God's grace that you're doing it it's only God's grace that you weren't born out in some land where you would be starving to death or starved to death by now it's only of God's grace that you've got an intellect to be able to do that work that you've got the physical abilities to do it it's only by God's grace that you're not one of the unemployed who can't find a job. Do we praise God and thank him, not just for what he's given us, but the recognition that we didn't deserve it, and most especially what we have in Christ. And then he pleads on the sovereignty and the grace and the power of God. Look at verse 11. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. He turns to God and he says, God, I can't do anything about this. I'm in a hard place here, God. I haven't got anyone else to turn to. I haven't got any other resources. God, I just turn to you and God, I cry out to you, God, save me. Because God, you can do that. You are the God who saves both physically when it chooses God, when it pleases God to do so in this lifetime and wonderfully in salvation eternally for all who call on his name. God has all power. God has all authority. 
God is totally sovereign in absolutely everything. My friend, do you know that? Do you believe it? I mean, I don't know what you're facing this coming week. I don't know what, as best as you can understand it, is going to be happening in work this week that you're already thinking about and contemplating and worrying about. I don't know how people are talking and, and what plans are being muted for changes and, and things happening there. And, and it's so easy for us to get caught up in that and, and worried by it and distressed by it and brought down by it. And God is sovereign. You know, if it pleases God that that will happen, it will happen. And if God doesn't want it to happen, it isn't going to happen. And no one on earth can change that. He is above all things. And he has promised that all things will work together for the good of those who love him and accord according to his purpose. He will use them to make you more Christ-like if your focus and your heart is in Christ. That's the good end to which God works in us. That we will magnify Christ and enjoy him more. And finally he pleads on the promises of God. Verse 12. You have said. And then he tells God what God said. Why is that a good thing? Has God forgotten what he said? Of course he hasn't. Does God need reminding of what he said? No, of course he doesn't. So what's the point of saying to God what God's already said? Because you know it's right. That's the point, isn't it? I mean, I mean, of all the things that we come to God in prayer and we have to say in it, either in words or at least in intent, if it is your will, because we don't know what God's will is, where God has spoken, we know what his will is. So we can come with absolute confidence that I'm right to pray for this because God, this is what God wants me to pray for and God will answer it in this way because he said so. The fact that it hasn't yet happened doesn't make it any less certain in God's plans Tomorrow, next year, next century, if the Lord doesn't return before then, I'll pray he does, what is going to happen is as certain as what happened yesterday to God. And he has promised. And he has made amazing promises in his word. And it's good when we come before him and say, Lord, Lord, you've said this. You know? Lord, I lack wisdom in this. I, I need wisdom. Lord, will you give me wisdom? Because you've promised that if I lack wisdom, I should come and ask of you and you'll give it to me. You know? Lord, I'm going in a situation here and I'm, I'm really struggling, but you've promised that you will be with me until the close of this age if I'm about your business, going into the world and preaching the gospel. So God, I want to claim that promise. Lord, I want to remind you that I'm in a place of needing to know the reality of that right now. Because you've said it. And that's how Jacob prays here. And my friend, that's a good way to pray. My friend, are you really praying as a Christian? if you are a Christian this morning. If you're not a Christian, you can't pray like this, can you? How can you worship God for who he is when you don't know him? How can you thank him for all the blessings he's given you when you're living a life in rebellion to that? How can you plead with him on the promises that he's made when those promises don't apply to you? You can't. But come in repentance to him. Come seeking his forgiveness for your rebellion. Come recognising that you deserve his wrath, that you don't deserve anything good from him. And it's only by his grace that you're still alive today to come and ask his forgiveness. And yield your life to Christ. Recognise his worthiness. Recognise that Christ will forgive you for his sake because what he has done. And then you can pray like this. And my friend, if you've done that, you should be praying like this. This is how you pray. 
Or do you still see prayer as some sort of get out of jail free? You know what I mean? Like, like life's, life's a game of Monopoly and, and you know, suddenly things go bad and then suddenly you've got to get out of jail free and you can sort of, oh, that's it, I've got out. And, it, and, it's, and that's how you look at prayer. You know, when all else fails, pray about it. Michael was saying this morning, there's nothing too big to bring to God in prayer. Can I add to that? There's nothing too small to bring to him either. You know, isn't that the wonder of prayer? That we just come and speak to a Father who knows us and who delights to bless us, not according to what we deserve, but according to his riches towards us in Christ Jesus. You do not have because you do not ask, says James. How often that is so true, isn't it? And when you do ask, he says, you ask with wrong motives. Reckoning with sin, praying to God, finally, look, wrestling with God. I think the right way to read verses 22 to 24 is something like this, because it's not abundantly clear there, but I, I, I think what it's saying is this, that it's at night, and presumably Jacob, the adrenaline's running, and, and he can't rest, he can't sleep, he's sort of tense, and, he, and he's all geared up for this encounter with Esau and so he's sort of restless and so he's, I know what I do, I, I'll, I'll get the families across and the people across the other side of the river that's, a, that's something practical I can do now and apparently the Jabbok's a very fast flowing river it's no easy thing to do what he did but he got them across there at night and then if I understand it right those verses, what it's saying is he then crossed back to the other side and so he's back on the side he originated from on his own, everyone else is now on the farther side towards Esau and there he is on his own in the darkness when suddenly someone comes up and attacks him, for want of a better word. They grab hold of him. They start fighting with him. And this fight goes on till daybreak. Now what's going on here? Both the NIV and the ESV have a subtitle sort of Jacob wrestling with God. And that's right, that's what's happening here. But can I just suggest you we be very careful how we use that expression because generally when we use that today, if we talk about someone wrestling with God, we generally mean, don't we, that there's something upon someone's mind and heart, uh, some great concern that they've got, they bring it to God and they wrestle with God. They continually plead with God over it. They're constantly um, talking to God about it. They lose sleep over it. They fast over it and they just dedicate themselves to, to constantly bringing this before God and we say they're wrestling with God over it. That isn't what happens here, is it? What happens here is actually the complete opposite. Jacob's there in the night not knowing what to do. He's got everybody across the other side and suddenly God comes and wrestles with him. God comes, the initiative lies with God. God takes him on. I suggest to you that this is probably a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. It's, it's God appearing, it would seem, in some human form. Certainly Jacob sees it as being God that he's wrestling with. And very clearly this person has got infinitely more power than, than Jacob's got. He just touches his thigh, just sort of puts his finger on it and, and his hip comes out of joint. This person could have crushed Jacob if that had been his intent. But it's not his intent, is it? So what's it about? Can I suggest there's a big change happens to Jacob in the middle of this just seems to me as we read it, as you read verse 24, it sounds like, it seems to come over like, at the start of it is a match for supremacy. Jacob's wrestling to come out on top. It's like Jacob saying, you know, okay, I'm going to take you on God and I reckon I can win. 
And by the time we get to verse 26, Jacob's sort of clinging on to God, saying, God, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. It's like everything's changed in his orientation with God as a result of this night. I suggest you it's about Jacob being brought to recognise that if he's ever to amount to anything for God, then it will be in submission to God and independence of God and not in his own strength and not in his own way. Up until now he's lived life his way, hasn't he? He's lied to achieve his own ends, he's deceived when it suited him, he's made vows to God based on if you do this then I'll do that. He hasn't simply submitted to the will of God. Even in his prayer to God in a few verses earlier, he doesn't in any way sort of say, God, if it's your will. It's God, I want you to do this for me. And it's as though God comes to him and says, well, Jacob, let's get this straight. Who's running your life? Is it you or is it me? And Jacob starts off wrestling with God. I'm going to win this contest. And as the hours pass, Jacob's getting nowhere. And God who could just crush him like that says, that's not my purpose. I'm just, I'm just holding you in submission, Jacob. I'm just holding you down now. I've just got you pinned down until you recognise that you're man and I'm God. And you're not getting anywhere like that, Jacob. You're never going to amount to anything in my sight. You're never going to be a, my servant. You're never going to glorify me. All the time you think you can wrestle with me and win. And then God just goes like that. And just puts his hip out. And Jacob realises. And Jacob changes his attitude and he clings on to God and he's holding on to God and he's saying, God, I'm not going to let you go. You know, I want you to bless me. I need you to bless me, God. God, you've won. You know, I, 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 I can't win this. There's no way I can win it, but what I can do is I can cling on to you. And God, that's what I'm doing. I'm hanging on here onto you until you assure me of your blessing. Isaiah... 12, 4 to 5 comments on this incident of Jacob and it says he struggled with the angel and overcame him he wept and begged for his favour he found him at Bethel and talked with him there the Lord God Almighty the Lord is his, is his name of renown and Jacob wrestles with God and he pleads with him and begged and wept and found his favour isn't that amazing? My friend, is it possible that you're still trying to wrestle with God and come out on top? Is it possible that somehow you think you can do it in your strength? If you're not a Christian, of course that's exactly what you're trying to do. Will you recognise you can't? You can't beat God. You can never wrestle with God and win. God's only got to go like that. And you're just dust. But my friend, if, are you a Christian and still trying to wrestle with God? That's, that's tragic. How can you? But are you still trying to do it in your own strength? Still trying to do it with your own glory attached to it somehow? You know, that God, I can do this for you and God, I can do that for you and I'm quite, doing quite a good job of that and look how successful I'm being in that. And, and next year I'm going to do that for the Lord and maybe then I'll go on to do that. Is, is that how you see it? And God will say, look, hang around a minute, who's running this life? You or me? Don't you understand I can just go like that and I can, I can throw you in an instant? Or have you discovered the amazing paradox that Paul discovered? 
when God showed to him that it's in our weakness that God is strong. That's what Jacob had to be shown here. That it's when we're weak that we're actually strong because God's power is at work within us. So says Paul, my great, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, says Paul, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest in me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. My friend, do you know that? Or is God going to have to come and teach you that? As he did Jacob. Jacob came away from this a different man, didn't he? In two ways, at least. I believe he was changed internally. That's the, the, the key way. But there were two things that show us that in the text, aren't there? One is God changes his name. God says to him, what's your name? God knows. He just wants Jacob to say it. My name's Jacob, the deceiver, the one who grasps the hill. That's who I am. And God says, no more. Now you're Israel. You're the one who's wrestled with God. And the text there, the, the Hebrew is ambiguous, whether it's uh, that, that, that he wrestled with God and won or whether it's God won. But... but the point remains the same. From now on, your name will remind you of this night, Jacob. The night when you took on God and ended up submitting to God and being blessed by God. And the other thing is he came away with it limping. I don't know how you read that. It's so easy to read those verses and feel really sorry for Jacob at the end of that, wouldn't it? A fit man, strong man, a man with journeys to make, people to look after, and now he's got a deformity, he's got a limp. I don't for one minute believe Jacob ever regretted that limp. That was a constant reminder there. Just as God left Paul with a thorn in his flesh, that that's there so that you depend on me. That's there so that you use my strength. That's there so you never again make the mistake of thinking you don't need me when you need me every moment of every day. Just pray that the Lord will touch me like that and touch you like that. That we'd never doubt our dependence on him. We'd never doubt his sufficiency but we'd never be tempted to try and organise our own lives without him or arrange him around our lives. But rather we'd come to him and say, Lord, save me again and again and again we're going